Listen, with Daniel Day-Lewis, it's like, all right, we get it. You're an actor. You're the actor's actor, okay? Like, you have to climb into every fucking role. I mean, I, I get it. Like, you got to live it out for, like, three years before we actually see it play out on screen. And get over yourself, man. It's like, if he was playing, like, you know, Roger Goodell, he would, like, you know, follow the commissioner around for three years, you know, climb into his shoes, wear his suits, go to his basement, hug guys at the draft. Like, just fucking be the commissioner and get over yourself, Daniel Day-Lewis. <laughs> Audiences will come away feeling like they've really been somewhere, that they are moved by the people they met and expanded by the experience. You can't ask more from a movie. That's Mick LaSalle of San Francisco Chronicle. He's talking about Stillwater, our feature review this week. Next week, by the way, I've got reviews of Pig, Nicolas Cage's new movie, Old M. Night Shyamalan, as well as the first three episodes of The Righteous Gemstones first season. But because of today... Because today is my birthday. We have Birthday Buddies Edition. Stu Gotts. That's right. John Wiener is going to join us. I can't believe the fact me and Stu share a birthday, Cody, and his brother has the same birthday. We're going to ask him his favorite movies all time. Let's just tell you, spoiler alert, Tango and Cash figures prominently in the discussion. <laughs> and also, Mark Harris, who is one of the best film writers alive. He's got a new book out about Mike Nichols called A Life. He also wrote about pictures at a revolution. And that interview, we talk about Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, Dustin Hoffman, The Graduate, Gary Shaling, The Sopranos, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Dr. Doolittle, not the Eddie Murphy version and there's lots of salacious details even you chris cody are going to be transfixed by that interview right i can't get over it's your birthday man this is exciting thursday right the 29th is your birthday and because you know in this podcast world it's confusing when you say today because people could be listening after that's a good point thank you but i'm wondering what do you do to celebrate your birthday you got kids like it we're kind of living in a post kind of a pandemic world like what were you what will you do to celebrate well it's interesting i I love tennis as you know so i I coached my wife to go play tennis she doesn't like playing that much but we just hit it around i just love running around feel the court you know my uh my my mom is visiting so she can look after the kids so my my uh, wife and i'll go out there and play i got my nephews and nieces visiting as well so it's a nice big family event I don't know. We'll probably hit some. I mean, as you know, with a child, everything is kids related. So even yeah. though it's my birthday, we're still going <laughs> to Chuck E. Cheese. Right. We're going to Chuck E. Cheese. We're still going to a jump house. Going, I thought this was my birthday. When, when do I get to celebrate my thing? But I, I uh, generally later at night. Listen, as long as there's ice cream cake, Cody, I'm thrilled. And to be uh, honest, once you get over 40, does it really matter? Like nobody really cares, no, right? So it doesn't. How old are you, by the way? 33. 33. You're a young man. When's your birthday? May 20th. All right, I'm writing this down. I can't, I, I'm, really, I'm good with birthdays. He's actually, he's actually writing it down. Look at that. <laughs> May 20th. Um, I can't wait for your review of Raging Bull. You just went with your wife and daughter to SeaWorld, which is mm. an adventure unto itself in Orlando. But I love the fact you made time for Raging Bull. I was hoping you sent me a text of the title, and I was like, great. And I go, I want running commentary. You only sent two more texts. I was disappointed. The other two texts were, wow, 15. How old is this chick <laughs> De Niro's dating? I'm like, yep, Vicky's 15, Catherine And then you asked, how old is De Niro's character? I'm like, I think he's 22 23 and then that was it that was the only only questions you wanted from me i just wanted to save the gold for now i mean for when i do my review i'm kidding i I don't know man i was thrown off by how because like she clearly how old was that actress she was playing a 15 year old but she had to be kathy moriarty was 19 at the time really yeah holy crap all right i'm just way off on that anyways i i like the movie that's all i'm gonna say for now i have more thoughts let's get to it later all right let me be clear 
Tom McCarthy's Stillwater, the best American film I've seen this year. And while there's still five months left in the movie calendar, I have no doubt it's going to be one of my top ten pictures of the year. So far, there has not been much competition aside from Lin-Manuel Miranda's controversy marred In the Heights. If you want that review, me and David Sampson did that. But Stillwater has all the marks of McCarthy's best films. Now, Tom McCarthy is an actor. He was notably on The Wire Season 5, that whole journalism sub, uh, subplot. But he found Oscar Gold with his incisive journalism ensemble film Spotlight. He's also made two other spectacular character-driven films. The Visitor, which was the pinnacle of Richard Jenkins' career, playing an aloof aging professor who's awakened by a relationship with an immigrant student and his mother, and their connection is an unlikely one. The kid teaches him to play the drums. McCarthy also made Win Win, one of my favorite films from one of my favorite actors. It starred Paul Giamatti as a middle-aged man, firmly in the grips of ennui, who finds salvation as a wrestling coach who takes care of an abandoned boy and becomes a surrogate father to him. The cast also had the always reliable Bobby Cannavale and Jeffrey Tambor, and that's one of the hallmarks of McCarthy's work, bringing out the best in the supporting cast, whether they're known or not. I mention that because those themes, surrogate father, immigration, they come into play with this film, which is called Stillwater. Now, Matt Damon plays a character you've never seen him do before, and I'm confident in saying this. This might be, at 50 years of age, the best performance of Matt Damon's career. He wow. received a five-minute standing ovation at the Cannes Film Festival, during which Damon was visibly choked up, and it's easy to see why. It's not only one of his best performances, but also one of his riskiest. He's done a character he's never done before, a construction worker from Stillwater, Oklahoma, with a twang who, after a long day of work, hits the fast food drive through sports a wolfish goatee, plaid short-sleeved dress shirts, wrap-around sunglasses, and always has the mesh trucker hat on top of his head. In his spare time, he loves scouting and catching the highlights of his beloved Oklahoma State Cowboys. We don't know much about him at first, but that's why McCarthy revels in character-driven storytelling. Like peeling back an onion, he lets us know who this guy is and what secrets he has buried. He visits his daughter's grandma before going to see her in Paris. We assume she's a college student overseas, but instead she's in prison. Seems she was in a relationship with an Arab girl who was murdered, and despite protesting her innocence and being a cause celebre, she's behind bars. And this is where the story gets interesting. Damon gets drawn into the aftermath of the case since he sees a window of opportunity to help his daughter and redeem his wayward life. He enlists a woman who happens to be staying at his hotel next door. She can translate French to English with ease, and after he's thwarted by a lawyer and a judge, he decides to go all Sam Spade and try and clear his daughter's name. This is a dangerous game to play, especially in a land where he can't speak the language. However, with McCarthy's work, it's not about the plot, it's the characters. And we have twin narratives in Stillwater. Damon's trying to help his daughter, who has deep resentment towards her father. By the way, she's played by Little Miss Sunshine's Abigail Breslin, all grown up. And he's also trying to find out more about himself in this different world. And how about this dance with the French woman? Is it romantic or is it platonic? What are the motives for each? Stillwater also hits the obvious notes of how this ugly American is treated in France, including a hilarious scene in which he's asked if he's a Trump supporter. The movie makes it obvious that her daughter, Maya, is another redemptive tool for Damon. He's trying to atone for the mistakes he made as an emotionally absentee father. But their relationship, him grunting in his English twang and her responding in French, is quietly touching and ends up delivering the movie's emotional climax. There's one major plot contrivance which I will not spoil, and I didn't totally buy it. But honestly, when you're in the hands of such self-assured filmmaking, I didn't let it detract from the overall emotion or feeling I had watching this film in a special preview screening in a New York City theater. It's another reminder why there's a place for small-scale storytelling, albeit with a major movie star channeling Gary Cooper, the strong, silent type, but far from infallible, trying to reconnect with family and begin a new one. As he painfully discovers, once you open yourself up to a new world, it's impossible to go back to your old one. Stillwater earns four Maple beliefs. It's certain, Chris Cody, to be one of the best pictures of the year. So we're overlooking a plot twist that you didn't buy, is what you're saying, right? Like, there's just the performance and the overall story kept you in it, but... 
just there, there was something in there that, like I don't I don't want you to spoil it but that's interesting that you can like this performance is so good I'm into it so much that I'm gonna overlook this odd thing that happened in the middle correct because there's other plot twists which I did appreciate and did not see coming and generally speaking if you can be unpredictable in this kind of story I appreciate that because I'm thinking okay it's a fairly predictable drama right. I know what he's the, gonna he, save her she's gonna get out at the end right. right and I was like okay this is definitely going in detours I did not expect and there's one moment I go mm, not totally buying that in a lesser film this might detract more from me but I'm enjoying all the other beats and like you said I'm enjoying the vibe the feel the aura of the film I'm willing to overlook that but if someone else sees it as you may and you go hey dude I didn't buy that I go yeah I hear in that and it feels like a movie for the times with the whole like is he a Trump supporter type thing and that character and like you know with the assumptions we make about people that look a certain way and sound a certain way so that does sound interesting, that dynamic. Yeah, Justin Chang of the Los Angeles Times, one of my favorite critics, it's possible to be genuinely moved by that reckoning and to admire the obvious intelligence and care that have been brought to bear on Stillwater without, and this is my point, fully buying the trail of contrivances and compromises it leaves in its wake. <laughs> right. Derek Smith of Slant Magazine, Stillwater gives itself over to drastic plot twists that derail what was already a film overstuffed with narrative instants and ideas. And here's one other one, Barry Hertz. I've never wanted a film to end so quickly and so differently. Wow. So not all rave reviews, but I think overall it is uh, got positive reviews. By the way, the script is interesting because a lot of it is in French. So Marcus Hinchy also wrote the screenplay as well as Thomas Bidegain, who's a French writer. I can't imagine, Cody, imagine you're writing a story and you're going, okay, uh, this line's in English and this line's in French, but you don't speak French. So I'm sure McCarthy's writing in English and going, okay, now you translate this and now you're going to ad-lib this. And so it must have been – Damon, for the record, said he barely speaks French, and McCarthy laughed. He because he's worse at French in life than he is in the movie, and he wasn't very good at learning it for the movie. So at times it was very tricky as to what's character, because he doesn't know what the other characters are saying. So um, other facts about it, uh, Tom McCarthy said they went to Oklahoma, learned more about Roughnecks. He said we went to Oklahoma early on to get a taste of the place, the people. They really opened their lives to us and their worlds and their families. They were incredibly instrumental in helping us shape the story. Um, and also, this was a review from Now Toronto in Stillwater, a movie inspired rather than based on the Amanda Knox story. Matt Damon plays up the gentle side of Trump's America. And he did say, listen, I'm a liberal guy from Boston. These are not my people, but I have a lot more respect for them now because I understand where they're coming from. So so did, did, can you spoil whether or not the character is a Trump supporter or not when he's asked that in the movie? Or do you not even sure, want to I'll, that no, that's okay. I'll give it three seconds in case someone want to hear it. Three, two, one. Okay, the spoiler alert's gone. What happens is it's the girl who he may be interested in, her friend who does not like him, here, ugly American, and then she says, did you vote for Trump? And he's like, no. And he's and they're kind of surprised, and he's like, um, I have a record. They're like, what? He's like, I, I was in prison. So in America, if, you have a, if you've been in prison, you can't vote. Oh, uh, okay. And they go on they to the play. next topic, but it's very clear this guy is definitely a Trump supporter. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought that was interesting because I'm like, a lot of the audience might go, oh, F him, he's a Trump guy. But he didn't technically vote for Trump, although everything about his makeup would be he would vote for Donald. <laughs> right. All right, give us your review of Raging Bull, and then we'll get to Stu. Ugh. I liked it, Adnan. There's my <laughs> review. No, I'm kidding. No, it was really good. I mean, obviously, when I know that you, a cinephile, has it in your, what is it, number four in your, what is it on your top ten? It, well, it's I in always, your top ten. So it's, yeah, it's when I have these high expectations – I often get disappointed by the movie, and I was into it the entire time. The interesting part of this, and I know it's a true story, Jake LaMotta, I could not I, – I did. I disliked him so much. I've never enjoyed a movie that I disliked the main character this much. I, I love Pesci. I was rooting for Vicky. Like, everyone I was rooting for, but, like, I just wanted Jake to lose. He was so – like, obviously, the way we treated women in the 40s, like, that part was a little jarring. But it's just – I just found myself enjoying the movie – 
and getting why it's thought of as this great movie and like the fighting scenes like you referenced are so good and it makes you feel like and even though it was made in the 80s it feels like it was in the 40s like it it's just such a well done movie and i really enjoyed it but i just really dislike jake lamada i did not see him becoming because i didn't know the story so i'm watching this and learn like he becomes like this stand-up actor at this <laughs> bar at the end of the movie like i did not see that coming from this character uh, it was, but it, it had my attention the entire time. I loved it. Like I said, when he's a fat failure as a comic, and he goes, "Hey, fuck you," and the horse you rode yeah. in on, and the whole cavalry yeah. behind you, like it's just lame yeah. jokes that he's doing. I'm like, what's happened to this guy? He was a champion was of the good. world. And I hadn't seen a lot of the early in the '70s and '80s uh, De Niro movies, so like I, I, I had only seen Robert De Niro as like you know in his '40s and '50s. So like to see a jacked Robert De Niro, like he, I was not sure if I was gonna buy him as a legit middleweight boxer but he he looked the part like I, I i was into it how about that scene with sugar ray robinson like you know the way they pause and that breath and the camera slowly zooms into jake yeah and then the assault comes and literally that blood yes. flaps on that old guy in the audience i mean that sequence is about as visceral as it gets oh we're one for one on me watching classic <laughs> movies and coming back to you and actually being like you know what you're right good movie i love it all right uh cinephile pod adnan esfer tweet us let us know what's the next great film that chris cody should watch yes we are one for one on raging bull let's get to our special guest All right, the Birthday Buddies edition here of Cinephile, as Stugatz is fond of saying, the home and home. Uh, it's been a pleasure being on Stupidity <laughs> in the past, and I was a part of the 24 Hours of Levitard, and now my man Stugatz <laughs> is joining us now. First and foremost, we've been friends for a while, and I don't know when we discovered it. It was a few years ago. I saw you tweeting about your birthday. I go, oh, my God, I have the same birthday. And then you even went further. Your brother is the same birthday, July 29th, when everyone is listening to this podcast. How cool is that? Great things, my man, come in threes. Yes, uh, I wouldn't exactly call what, th this arrangement a home and home. You've been on my podcast 17 times. This is the first time. <laughs> it's 17 <laughs> homes for me. <laughs> for every one I do for you. Um, no, it was weird to find out that, yes, that you and I, We've been friends for a while. We share a birthday. My brother also has the same birthday. We are not twins. I have twin girls. Uh, my brother and I are not twins. Uh, my brother and I are separated by four years. And so the joke at our house has always been that mom and dad had sex twice, okay? They had sex uh, nine months before my brother was born, and then exactly three years later, they did it again, and boom, out came Stugatz. <laughs> So the question goes to you, Chris Cody. I feel like you obviously know Stu very well. I feel like you know me fairly well. Are you surprised that he and I share the same birthdays? If you go by horoscopes, we're both Leos. That means there's lots of similar traits here. A little bossy, a little demanding, maybe egotistical, but also generous and incredibly loyal. Cody, do you think Stu and I are very similar? You love you both love to hear yourself talk. So that's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of Leos cutting it up. How about that? <laughs> How about when we first met Sid Sixero, who is now I love the fact he's been a part of the show because for years he Fraud. adored you guys. Exactly. Leo Messi. He had asked me years ago, he goes, Hey, what what's Dugas really like? And I said, He's the best. And he goes, What do you mean? I go, I'll give you a story. I said, the first time I meet these guys, it's in Miami. And Rosillo, it's all him. He goes, You want to come to the All-Star game? You know, you can come do some shows with me. I go, Great. And I go there, and I said, when I see Cody, of course, big handshake hug. Roy was thrilled to see me, which was surprising. Billy, obviously. But I go, Stu, and I, I literally, it was like Lady in the Tramp. I see him in the studio, which is incredibly cramped. We meet eyes. It's like, yeah! We just screamed. I'm like, <laughs> like And just huge two-handed hug, which, by the way, 
was unbelievable compared to when I met Dan. Levitar yeah. walks up, mm. sees Awkward. me in Rosillo, and it was awful. He just goes, it was almost like he rolled his eyes, going, like, oh, hey, like he was taken aback. <laughs> like a, a limp fish handshake walked away. It was so traumatic, Stu. I turned to Cody after and go, hey, man, I know we just met, but I'm like, that was that was awful. He goes, don't worry. Dan's socially awkward. It's okay. Yeah, it's not you. So it's weird. him. <laughs> yeah. No, Dan has a magical way uh, upon meeting him of making you feel like he ha hates your fucking guts. Okay? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, so true. It's, so his, true. it's one of his greatest magic tricks, if not... If not his best man, he's just awkward. He's socially awkward. He doesn't mean to do it, Ad Dan. He loves you. You now know him a lot better than you did then. Uh, in fact, I would say Rosillo is equally as bad when it comes to this. I thought Rosillo was going to punch me in the face upon meeting him. Uh, <laughs> but Levitar doesn't do it intentionally. He's just not good around people. <laughs> well, but, but here's what's odd about it, but he's a big FaceTime guy. He called yeah, me oh last yeah. week in face. Yeah. I was so thrown off. I go, gee, wow, God, he must have done a pocket dial. And I just ignored yeah. it. And jokingly, I, I call him back, and he's like, he's getting a Cuban sandwich. And he's like, hey, what's going on? I go, wait, this wasn't by accident? He's like, no, I, I, I want to talk to you. And I listened to you guys with Dan Patrick, and he FaceTimed Dan with his shirt off. Like, it's awful. Yes, he's like, yes. he's like wait, a wait, 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 well, FaceTime. Have you received a shirtless FaceTime from Levitard yet? Because Not it's yet. magical. I mean, that's his second best magic trick. <laughs> it's like, Dan... I'm not even certain I really want to talk to you, but I have to talk to you without your shirt on. Like, get the fuck out of here. Chris, you've gotten it. But the trifecta is once you get the 4 a.m. long text, too. Oh, That's the full yes. trifecta of the Levitard experience. Yes. Have you gotten those yet, Adnan? I feel no, like you have. I, I actually have. He saw he saw a movie. Oh, it was, it was The Sound of Metal. And he sent me this insanely long text. Like, Jesus, like, like, what are we doing here? He's on a right, bender. Right. He had some gummies, like our boy Russo. A couple of gummies, and all of a sudden he's messaging me. <laughs> uh, sit back and come on, gummies. Levitard's weird. And here's, here's another thing that Levitard does. He gets in these group texts, and he has no idea who's in uh. the group text. And then he's sending a text. He thinks he's sending it to one person at 4 a.m., yeah. not realizing he's waking up the entire show. I mean, it's... <laughs> well, one thing I noticed about... One thing I notice about Cody is he'll send a group text to me and Cody, and I'll respond or a like or haha. Cody ignores it. And I was like, wow, he's at the relationship I mean, now, it's... just blows off his boss, doesn't even what? acknowledge him. It's just because a lot of times it's something like I, I like it's not doesn't need it. Like, yes, you're right, Adnan. I just ignore it because I know how to play the Dan notes. And yes. sometimes you just let him talk and you let him go. Yep. All right, You'll I'll learn, let my man Stu go. Because I've heard this for <laughs> years. Learn. People know uh your disdain, which I'm gonna just let you go off here. This is Stu Gotts at his best on Daniel Day Lewis. And Meryl Streep. And people, every oh, time you go off on them, they'll they'll at me. You're like, yo, yo, Stugatz is dropping knowledge. He's crushing DDL. And I'm like, listen, Daniel Lewis, gangs in New York, there will be blood. He goes, I don't know what Stu's issue is, but he's all over him and he's all over Meryl Streep. I'm ceding the floor to you. Go ahead. It's all you. Listen, with Daniel Day-Lewis, it's like, all right, we get it. You're an actor. You're the actor's actor, okay? Like, you have to climb into every fucking role. I mean, <laughs> I, I get it. Like, you got to live it out for, like, three years before we actually see it play out <laughs> on screen. And get over yourself, man. It's like, you know, give it a month's preparation. Get out there on the big screen and let it fly. I mean. <laughs> Where's he been, by the way? Oh, he's retired. Uh, okay, I was gonna say. You know, if he was playing, if he was playing like you know Roger Goodell, he would like you know follow the commissioner around for three years. You know, climb into his shoes, wear his suits, go to his basement, hug guys at the draft. Like just fucking be the commissioner and get over yourself, <laughs> Daniel Day Lewis. <laughs> and then Meryl Streep has to be the most overrated actor in the history of acting. I mean, seriously, what has she won? 
I mean, she's batting like 119 in terms of like Oscar awards. That wouldn't be good enough. I mean, she'd be sent down to the minors if she was a baseball player. You're saying and she's so just, Lewis Brinson. You're saying she's Lewis Brinson right now. I, I, well, Chris, what would be the proper analogy? Because she gets nominated a lot, she right? She has three. She three has Oscars. three Oscars. 21 she nominations. Had three, but it, uh, 21, three for 21. I mean, Adnan, listen, I had to look that up. I had to look that up, Adnan. Did you just know that off the top of your head? I know these things, okay? Catherine Hepburn, <laughs> by the way, Catherine Hepburn, four Oscars, 12 nominations. And to Stu's point, right. she's batting 333, Meryl Streep at 142. Uh, Stu, adaptation? You don't love adaptation, Meryl Streep? I didn't even see adaptation. I, like, what is adaptation? I, w- I wouldn't <laughs> expect you to watch, like, Sophie's Choice or Silkwood or. Yeah. I'm trying to think what's the uh, what's the best movie I've seen with Meryl Streep. Um, the River Wild, uh, Mamma Mia. I mean, <laughs> you no, know, you haven't hit one yet. I mean, <laughs> did anything blow up in those? I mean, no, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I can't see like in the Queen, so we won't even touch Margaret Thatcher. But that brings us to one of your favorite movies, Tango and Cash. Yes. And all I can tell you about Tango and Cash this is all that's seared in my memory is the trailer. Which Stallone and Kurt Russell, one of them says to the guy, how come yours is bigger than mine? And the answer is genetics. <laughs> that's writing. I mean, <laughs> that's how you do it. I mean, Meryl Streep, they are not. <laughs> but what is it about Tango and Cash that is special allure to? Is it just, hey, nostalgia, big action movie. Me and my brother used to watch it on Long Island back in the day. Uh, it starts with Stallone, right? And being back in the 80s. And then, yeah, it's like, for me, it's the perfect, it's the perfect action movie because... It's big. It's dumb. The writing's not terribly good. You know, my mind can kind of wander away for a couple of minutes and then wander back into the movie, and I didn't miss a fucking thing, okay? And so (laughs) I love that. And then, like, classic 80s stuff, like, it has all, for me, it has all the essentials. It has, you know, it has a villain, uh, Jack Palance, who I believe that's the best role Jack Palance has ever played. Some people would say City Slickers. Just about to say, he in won fact- an Oscar for City Slickers, but to your point, he's, he's in City Slickers like 12 minutes. He barely yeah. shows up as Curly. This is the yeah, secret of life. The- what? Your but finger? He, he's- no, it's one thing. He's better in yeah. Tango and Cash. Yeah, he steals the movie. Uh, he really does. He steals the movie. But then you have like these two rivals who, through a confluence of events, turn it, it turns into a buddy cop movie in Tango and Cash. And what I love most about it is Stallone's character, I believe Stallone, yes, yeah, Stallone is Ray Tango, okay? <laughs> like, Stallone, so you have Stallone, who's a cop, right? But he's a cop, he's on the good side, he's classy, right? He works. And then you have Kurt Russell, who is wearing tank tops and stuff, and, you know, he's on he's on the bad side of town, right? He's the bad cop, and, you know, the renegade cop. But what I love the most about the movie is Stallone is dressed like he could be your wealth manager. I mean, he's making 42 grand a year as a fucking cop, and he's dressed like he's making 42 million a year, taking your money and investing it. It's just, and then you have Kurt Russell, uh, you know, dating the the scene. It's so poorly written, but the scene where Stallone uh, (laughs) walks in on Kurt Russell getting a massage from his sister. And you think they're having sex. <laughs> and the only one who doesn't know is Stallone. Uh, I don't know. It's just big. It's dumb. Things blow up. It's funny. Uh, you have rivals that turn into buddies. And then you have this Jack Palance character. Um, and so for me, it's just a classic 80s action movie where Stallone's in it. A lot of things blow up. Uh, I don't have to think a lot. It's easy to follow. And, and I just loved it. It's, it. For me, it's a top five movie easily. Easy. Cody, have you seen Tango and Cash at all? Or at the very least, has Stu sold you on it after that review? 
I mean, I've heard Stu talk about Tango and Cash for years. I've never seen it. I'm wondering though, Adnan, because you dismiss all these action movies like Tango and Cash. Do you are do you like any of these? The ones that the Lebetard show is obsessed with. Like, which of those do you can you tolerate? Well, I know you guys have, like you said, you've gotten deep down the rabbit hole of like Commando and such, but I'm a huge fan of Face Off, which I'm sure right. I'm, Mike Ryan has talked about Face Off. I'm definitely Stu like Face Off. Face Off is you fabulous. Are. Much in the ways that Stu's talking about, it has to be so outlandish and so ridiculous that it's I love it. Like, I mean, literally, I'm just going to take his face off. Um, yes. th there is violence taking place on <laughs> boats, on trains. There's dubs. There's slow motion. You got Nick Cage over the top. John Travolta doing this with the run the hands down the face. I mean, it's so cheesy. It's good. Face off's one of my all time favorites. Yeah, it's a great movie. But what's a smart action movie? Like, what is like what's like that that Adnan would approve and say, OK, that's a smart, really good action. movie. It's like like for me. They all have to be big and dumb. Like, Mike and I love Point Break. We love Speed. But what's a smart action movie? I'll tell you one that's a critically acclaimed action movie that, like, critics swoon over is Mad Max Fury Road. Which yeah, that's a have great much movie. Of, but it's an incredible movie. Like, if anybody yeah. says to me, hey, what's an action movie for smart people? I go, you should watch Mad Max Fury Road. I, I saw that movie. It's I saw that movie in the theater. Maybe I had too many gummies, but it was just it was just so intense. And I was just like, what is happening in this movie? I feel like I missed stuff. Because everyone was just, it was just an intense scene where we were on like a car the whole time being chased. I felt like there was no scenes outside of those chase scenes. It was the gummies. <laughs> I think it was definitely the gummies because it's one elaborate chase sequence. But I mean, the intensity, Stu knows this, the best action movies, you go, how the hell did they do that? Or that doesn't look fake. That looks real. If you can do that in an action movie, then yeah. the people, and Mad Max, you go, this is all real. These guys, they can't fake that. This guy's right. flying through the air, jumping on a motorbike. This is insane. As opposed to as opposed to Tango and Cash, where you know it's all bullshit and fake. Like, there's no way any of that any of that would happen. Like, he opens up a tanker, I think, with his car key, uh, Stallone does, and how pours, like, kilos of cocaine. That's the first scene in Tango and Cash. Like, who's opening up a gas tanker with a can opener? <laughs> Stallone is. That's who's doing it. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Back to Point Break. I mean, listen, I'll make you famous. Is there anything better? Patrick Swayze, I, I think his most iconic role is Dirty Dancing, but I'm telling you, Stu, for guys of a generation, my, my cousin Point Break's like his favorite movie. Like, it's a hell of a movie, man. 
Oh, it's it's to me, it's I'm going to put like 100 movies in my top five. But Point Break is <laughs> I, I am telling you right now, Point Break. Patrick Swayze is so good in that movie. I'm not certain what's his better role. What's the one you just said? Dirty Dancing, right? Yeah, I, for ghost me, people it's got talk a, about. Yeah, I, I would say it's either it's Roadhouse or Point Break, to be quite honest with you. Like, he was really good at Roadhouse, you know? Like, he's the young bouncer coming up, and Sam Elliott's the cagey vet, and he's teaching him, showing him the ropes, and Swayze ends up being better than Sam Elliott. But Point Break is just, it's magical. I mean, Bodie, the character, the allure around Bodie, the mystery around Bodie. Um, to me, and then you have inexplicably, you have a red hot chili pepper thrown in there. <laughs> Anthony <laughs> Kiedis. Um, you have Keanu Reeves in there. Uh, Gary Busey is fantastic. It really, Adnan, I know you love the names that I'm, that I'm spitting out right now. Like that movie, Gary that movie Busey's is under, too, I'd watch Gary yes. Busey and go, is this guy Nick Nolte? Like what's going on here? They couldn't get Nick Nolte. <laughs> well, get Gary yeah. Busey. He's a little crazier, yeah. similar overbite. He's definitely intense. Amazing. I, I, I love when they're uh, they're copped out. They're waiting for the ex presidents, right? And like, and Utah is hungry, and Nolte and uh, Busey is hungry, and uh, and then and he tells them right down the street because you know he's been on the beat for a thousand years, Busey, so he knows every cheesesteak stop <laughs> wherever the hell they are, and he sends Utah out to get him a cheesesteak. Utah, two. He wants two cheesesteaks, okay? I got Mike Ryan a shirt that simply reads, Utah, two. And I've never seen Mike Ryan happier in my entire life. It's the best gift I've ever gotten him. I, I, I love, see, it's different than Tango and Cash. Tango and Cash is just straight dumb. Point Break will make you think a little bit, you know? There's a love story involved. There's all this great stuff in there. So uh, I know I you're going to roll. Man. We have one more in the top five. So Tango and Cash, Point Break, Speed, Roadhouse. What else is in the top five or just on the cusp? Uh, Rocky, Rocky 2, Rocky 3, Rocky 4, First Blood. There'll be more blood. <laughs> Rambo 2, <laughs> Cobra. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> is that too many in my top five? I don't know. I, I, I'm going to do a real – Go ahead. No, Rocky, Rocky Four, amazing. Just for the shot of them, like slow motion on the beach, like one of the great right. homoerotic scenes ever. No, there's no question. Can we just rank the Rockies real quick? Because <laughs> I think a lot of people say, right? They'll say Rocky, the original, is the best one. And for me, for me, it actually goes in reverse order. Rocky Four to me with Drago. Now I got to think about no, it. No, no, no. Thinking listen, about Club Rocky, the original I, Rocky's the best, but number two is Rocky Four. Because the entertainment value is off the charts. See, I would say, mm, I would say three with Clubber Lang. That's the best Rocky of all time. Um, then Rocky four with Drago is the second best. Rocky two would be third, and Rocky uh, would be fourth, and then Creed would be would be fifth. Creed was really good. Wow. I know I'm doing it. I, well, Chris, there's not a lot of boxing in the original Rocky. You have to understand that with 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 three, you get two fights. Okay. You get the first fight against Clubber Lang in which Rocky loses because, you know, Mickey's been hurt. And then you get, and, and then you get the rematch in which he, he destroys Clubber Lang because he's fighting for Mickey. And then four, you get some of the same stuff. Like Drago fights Apollo. Apollo dies in the ring. That drags Rocky out of retirement and he kicks fucking Drago's ass, okay? And Russia, in the middle of the match, goes from chanting, you know, Drago's name to Rocky's name and it gives me goosebumps just talking about it. What a movie, man. <laughs> I mean, it's one of the great, so bad, it's so good moments 
when yes. when the reconciliation at the end, you know, if if we yes. can change, we can, I mean, it's just so bad. If, it's if good. I could do it, if you could do it. Wow. <laughs> we but my favorite part of Rocky Four is the training montage. Like literally, Rocky is oh. a log and he's in the snow, and you've got the Russian with these suction cups on his chest on an uphill yep. tread, incline of twelve on the treadmill. If you ranked them that way, just by the training, uh, the training scenes, four would be one, right? Because Chris, he goes to he goes to fucking Siberia, right? He does not want to be bothered because this is the match of a lifetime. He has to avenge the death of Apollo and not let down an entire country, and then try to get in a cold war, try to get the other country, okay, <laughs> to fall in love with him. I mean, and he did it, all of it. He did all of it. It was amazing. Bridget Nielsen too. Not uh, oh, not yeah, mad at yeah. that. Not mad at yeah. that. Uh, the, the great Stugats. I love the top five. So we have the Rockies. We have Tango Cash, Point Break, Speed, Roadhouse, Rambo, First Blood. Lots of blood. Lots of carnage. I, I love the different appeal that you gave to us here on Cinephile. Yes. And seriously, on, on a serious note, I listened to you with Train As you know. I texted you, Jimmy Train As the SI Media Podcast, and you have lots of goals beyond what you're doing, which is already great. This has to happen. You have to get back on ESPN Lacrosse coverage. Unlike me and Dan. There was no bridge severed. You're you're in good standing with those guys. So I really hope this happens. I, I hope I am. I don't know if I am or I'm not. Like, <laughs> like am I or am I not because I'm attached to Dan? <laughs> that, <laughs> there might be a little bit of guilt by association, but I think you can extricate yourself from that because this is all Levitard. I did nothing wrong. Uh, I'm working towards it. I Listen, of all the things that I was able to do at ESPN, um, being able to – I've never done this before, Adnan. Like, I did first take, and that was great and dream come true type stuff. But to be in a booth and to be an analyst for a game was something different, something unique, something special to me. And to do it in a sport in which my daughter is thriving in, and really I'm thriving as a coach because we have the number one team in the country, um, I'd like to think it's like it's a benign (laughs) ancillary sport that I happen to love. And, you know, I'd like to think if I call the ESPN, I haven't done it yet, and say, hey, I don't care if you put me on anything else. I just want to do the women's uh, lacrosse final four national championship game. I'd like to think that they, that they would say yes. But again, I don't know what the reaction is going to be because I'm pretty certain they don't like Dan. So I mean, I don't, I don't know what to do. <laughs> I mean, you can ascertain they're not big fans of Dan. That is a fair point. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but they, they definitely, I, I hope it happens. You and Anish Shroff, Chris Cotter, that lacrosse crew, I think it'd be great. So, uh, And we had a blast doing it. Yeah, we had a blast doing it. They should put you back on baseball tonight. Is that still a thing? <laughs> and like then, I'm Floyd, telling you. One night only. <laughs> no, like Boog Shambi is like a broadcaster's broadcaster. Boog is like, he's one of the best that we have, right? And he told me and Dan that hosting baseball tonight yeah. was the most difficult fucking thing he has ever done. And Adnan, I'm not certain I've ever seen anyone better at it than you. No, like, so I'm serious. Yeah, oh, I appreciate it. That's so sweet of you, man. It was definitely great yep. days, and it was definitely an intentional. And I owe Boog a lot. I feel Boog, it's like the mob, right? Boog was a part of your mob that he introduced me. It was like, hey, this is a friend of a friend. You guys would like this. And now, of course, our relationship yep. has developed. So, Is there yep. anything Is there anything I could do at ESPN? Go back and do? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, maybe. Uh, <laughs> we left because of you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not in the booth calling the women's final four because of you. Yeah, all because of Cody. Uh, I love you. Happy birthday, Stu. <laughs> happy birthday to you and your brother. July 29th, a happy birthday. Stanza gave us the quiz last year on Stupidity. By the way, always check out Stupidity with Stu Gotts. Great, great listen. Mike A is now taking over the chair from Dan Stanzik. He gave us the birthday quiz last year. July 29th, Ken Burns, Getty Lee. Good day for birthdays. Yes. Yeah, great day for birthday. Uh, happy birthday uh, to you. How old are you, Adnan? Uh, let's put it out there. I'm 48. I'm going to be 48. 43, so... 
40, God, man, what I would not give to be 43 again. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Listen, I'm just telling you, weird shit starts happening after the age of 45. I can't explain it, okay? <laughs> but you'll see. <laughs> I remember John Anderson once, I walked in the newsroom. I was like, oh, I just had my physicals. How'd it go? It was great. He goes, don't worry, once you hit 45, you ain't going to be whistling Dixie when you walk in this room, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I love that pre-45 Anderson was whistling Dixie on his way yeah. in. Because <laughs> I could see him doing that. <laughs> Once the plastic glove came out, different story. All right. Thanks, dude. Hey, hey happy birthday, my man. Uh, put us there when uh, Federer lost at Wimbledon. What happened? <laughs> oh, gee. No, I don't want to go back to that. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> and I'm so pathetic because I was like, the draw could not be easier, right? Rafa's yes. not there. Medvedev upset. I'm like, oh, my God. He'll probably lose to Joker in the final, but just to see Roger in the final again, I'm like, wait, what the f- Who is this? F- Urkatch? What is this shit? Quarterfinals? <laughs> Are you kidding? Straight sets? What? The last set was in 28 minutes. Thank God you guys didn't call me. I, I felt a phone call coming out. Don't call me. Don't call I, me. I, Please. I was so alone. tempted. I wanted to go live on air with you. I was so tempted. <laughs> Next time, let Andrew you. Brandt on. He would have been a great. <laughs> I love you, buddy. Happy birthday. Love you too, buddy. Thanks, man. Okay, man. It is an absolute pleasure to talk to one of the best cinema writers in the world. Mark Harris is his name. Used to love his work at Entertainment Weekly. He's the author of Pictures at a Revolution. Five came back. And his new book on Mike Nichols, which Random House was uh, grateful enough to send me, which I've been pounding through. It has been a great, great read. Mark, thank you so much for the time. Uh, thanks for having me. I think one of the coolest things about being author is no matter who you talk to, you figure out what their interests are. So I'll make this real easy for you. I'm going to ask you about my favorite people, and all of them are touched by Mike Nichols. Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, Gary Shanling, The Sopranos, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, we'll get into all that. Let's start with Al, who's one of my favorites. Angels in America. Of course, your husband, Tony Kushner, wrote Angels in America, adapted it. One of the first things Al did when he shows up, he boots Tony Kushner off the set, doesn't want writers there. And later on, he just keeps doing take after take. Said Meryl Streep, page 531, he likes that. Uh, 12th, 16th, 18th, try to scene. Everything he did was always interesting, though. Even in a late take, he'll throw you a curve. He's like De Niro. Some actors just don't want to go home. Said Michaels, I can't imagine anything better. I'm very happy. And he'd say, I'll give you one more for free, and it would be better. He was working Working toward a facility with the whole thing, the words he had, my God, the long speeches, they were completely digested and came out in music and fire. What else can you tell me about Pacino and Nichols' relationship? Well, one thing I can tell you uh, that Tony told me was that probably of the whole cast of Angels, Pacino was the one who came in most prepared. I know that some people might think that if you're asking to do a 16th or an 18th take, that means you didn't do your homework. But he really did. Um, Tony said he had a couple of copies of the play that looked like they had fallen into a bathtub. They were like swollen and marked up and wrinkled and just had really taken a pounding. So, um, you know, Mike Nichols was always really um, in sympathy with actors and not in sympathy with just one type of actor. He liked actors who flew by the seat of their pants. He liked actors who really prepared. So Pacino was someone he had been chasing for literally decades, you know, going back to uh, Catch-22. He really wanted to look at Pacino for Catch-22 in 1970. So more than 30 years later, when Angels comes around, I think he was just 
thrilled to work with him and 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 thrilled to see how he worked great anecdote ben shankman who is on the set and adores pacino and says to mike hey can i just watch al act he goes sure and afterwards he goes what'd you learn shankman says keep it simple and mike said no that's not the right answer the right answer is see how hard it is even for your master even for your idol see how many times just to try it you've just watched 10 takes i know you can see it was great here but not there and then great again but not great right the important moment that's what film acting is we're not trying to draw the perfect line you do whatever you need to be be real be fake be quiet be loud and then leave the rest to me i'll know it when i have it and i'll put it all together that might be one of the best summations i've ever heard mark about what film directing is yeah and i think it was something that um nichols took uh his whole career to sort of get to if you go back uh 35 years before angels in america to the graduate that wasn't really what he was saying to uh dustin hoffman what he was saying to dustin hoffman was you know, this is the only day you're ever going to do this scene and it's going to last forever. So this is your one chance to get the scene right, which is true, but also kind of a terrifying thing. Um, by the time Angels in America comes around, um, Mike has so deeply come to understand all of the aspects of filmmaking, including editing and post-production and, and how to cut something together, that he realizes that nobody has to be perfect in one straight run from beginning to end, that, that uh, it's a director's job to find the perfect moments and put them together. It's amazing, the evolution of his career. He can't talk Pacino without talking De Niro. Bogart slept here. Neil Simon. How did Mike Nichols fire Robert De Niro? Tell us this story. Right. You know, Mike joked later in his career that uh, he had fired some of the best actors in the business. And, um, you know, from Gene Hackman on The Graduate uh, to Robert De Niro. And De Niro was certainly way up there. Um, you know, this movie that uh, Mike fired him from called Bogart Slept Here, a Neil Simon movie, uh, eventually shut down completely. Mike couldn't find a replacement for him. And uh, it, it it triggered what turned out to be a seven or eight year period during which Nichols didn't direct any movies at all. And it was a strange circumstance. It was a very light 70s style Neil Simon comedy, but um, uh, De Niro, who was like a really hot young actor at the time had just come off Taxi Driver, literally uh, three days um, earlier. And, you know, now we look at De Niro in the fullness of his career and we see things like analyze this and, um, you know, there's not really a huge question about uh, whether he can be funny or not, but nobody knew, uh, including really him, whether he had any um, comedy skills uh, in the mid-1970s. This movie was uh, being shot around 1975. And, um, it, he was just a mismatch for uh, this material and for that moment and for, for Nichols, who, who wasn't in a good head himself and kind of couldn't stand all of uh, De Niro's questions. But it was something I know that Mike always felt um, bad about. Yeah, at one point, De Niro's quoted, I felt like shit the whole time I was sitting in my camper. We were shooting on location in the Hollywood Hills, and I heard one crew guy say to another, he's just not funny. The other guy said, he sure isn't. I thought, oh, my God. And you're right. For actors, when people are talking about you like that, it can affect you, which brings you to my favorite comic actor, the incredible Gary Shandling. And unfortunately, things did not work out with him and Mike on what planet are you from. Again, sounds like, Mark, just a bad match here. Nichols liked Chandling's work. He loved the Larry Sanders show, but he also got paid $8 million for this, did not show up prepared, and very quickly you could realize these two are not going to work out at each other's throats. Chandling is an insecure guy, and that's genuine. That's not just his act. 
And the way that Mike was cruel to him and mean-spirited, I think it's fascinating what you were able to point to at what exactly Mike was working through. Perhaps Gary Shanling, with all the insecurities, jokes about attractiveness to women, the stuff with his hair, Mike was working through something himself. Take us through that. Yeah, I, I think that's really one of the sadder episodes in, in Mike Nichols's career. It's very late in his career. Um, indirectly, it's the thing that leads to him doing Angels in America, so it had a sort of happy ending for, for him. But um, Mike was a big fan of the Larry Sanders show. He didn't know Gary Shandling outside of that. And I think that he assumed that... Um, Shandling was giving a brilliant performance, which he was because he was a brilliant actor, not because uh, the material in the Larry Sanders show was so perfectly tailored to him to his particular talents. And, um, you know, this was a case where Mike doing what he did occasionally, which was to chase a big paycheck, really hurt the whole enterprise because the people who were involved in What Planet Are You From described it as like, uh, an indie style comedy, a really offbeat small scale comedy that in 1999, they said could have been directed by like a, a Spike Jones or, or a Michelle Gondry or a Charlie Kaufman. The minute Mike gets $8 million for it, everybody else's salary goes up. And the minute everybody else's salary goes up, it goes from being what could have been a $12 million movie to a 60 or 70 or $80 million movie. And the the kind of light offhand delicacy of its comedy um, turns into something big and overblown and heavy. And then beyond that, there was this really challenging relationship between Mike and Gary Shandling, where Mike felt really almost from the first takes on the first day that Shandling couldn't act and wasn't prepared and and didn't know you know his own script well and just really uh the animosity between them became very personal and very discomforting and um it sent mike back into therapy to figure out why he had been so hard on shandling and and it, it really did turn out that that he saw in shandling a, a reflection of all of his own insecurities and just did not handle it well. I love Annette Benning's honesty when she said, I'm sad to say Mike just treated Gary terribly in a way that I'd never seen. He was humiliated, and it was more upsetting because Mike was a hero to us. We all knew how much he loved actors, and like he said, the movie, I mean, colossal failure. The reviews were okay, but it lost $90 million, so it really was a traumatic episode. We're talking with Mark Harris. Mike Nichols is the book that he's written, A Life. He's also written Pictures at a Revolution, and Five Came Back. You should read all of them. The Sopranos is my favorite TV show all time. Mike Nichols could have been in The Sopranos, and he said no because he was the wrong jew what happened okay but <laughs> in in fairness to mike 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 was um brought in by david chase to do one episode um and if you love the sopranos you know that it's like one of the great episodes of all time with with one of the great carmella moments of all time it's when edie falco um who's been dithering about her marriage to tony goes to a therapist and says oh what should i do uh you know i don't know what to do i've brought evil into my home he does terrible things and she's looking for sympathy and what she gets is this kind of heavy old testament guy basically saying to her you're complicit take your kids what's left of them and go um you know you you kind of need to spend the rest of your life atoning i won't take your money you shouldn't take his money she gets much much more than she bargained for and david chase wanted um uh mike to play that part and <laughs> When Mike said you've got the wrong Jew, he meant something really specific, which was 
um, the guy they cast ended up being this like 86 year old actor who who looked and sounded like you know he was 186 years old like like an old 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 world rabbi and and mike was this sort of sophisticated cultured polished wry droll german jew it it it, it he wouldn't have had um the the right vibe for it and and it's a kind of great thing that mike who was always so brilliant at casting um knew when he himself had been miscast and kind of voluntarily walked away and became friends with David Chase as a result of that decision. Yeah, the actor is Sully Boyer, whose Old Testament severity gave the series one of his most memorable scenes, as you wrote. David Chase and I became friends to that self-firing. That should be the title of my biography, The Wrong Jew, which I did see you put the acknowledgement. Sorry, Mike, I did not take your advice, but this is the title <laughs> I'm going with. Um, Philip Seymour Hoffman is one of my favorite actors ever. I was lucky enough to see Death of a Salesman. Unfortunately, did not get great tickets. So we were in the, like literally in the back row. My wife had a long day. She's falling asleep. But I, I'll never forget it because Seymour Hoffman was incredible. And this was amazing to me because afterwards, my wife said to me, because there was a lot of yelling. And this is amazing because Mike, this is late in his career now. He's battling in health. But he was still able to give some notes to Philip Seymour Hoffman. And in fact, during Salesman's previews, at one point, Phil said, am I yelling too much? Is it too angry? Mike said, yes. Phil said, when? Mike said, I don't want to tell you, but it's a little too angry. That was it. In the next show, Phil toned it down. Mike knew he'd figure out when and how to do it. Again, there's real pathos to this, Mark, because this play, as anyone knows, Philip Seymour Hoffman, unfortunately drove him back to drinking and drugs. The press, uh, the pressure of it, the stress, the fact that Hoffman had done it, et cetera. But it did love the fact that he and Nichols reconvened. They'd done the Seagull together and also this. And even as the line in winter, Mike Nichols is able to win another Tony Award, his seventh, this time for best directing, was able to really bring out the best in Philip Seymour Hoffman, although it went to a tragic end. Tell us a little bit about their relationship. Yeah, I think there were certain actors throughout Mike's career that he fell in love with. And, and once he connected with them and discovered with them, he wanted to work with them for the rest of his life or theirs. Meryl Streep was one, you know, that was a 30 plus year kind of professional love affair. And Philip Seymour Hoffman was another. They did The Seagull together uh, on stage in Central Park. They did Charlie Wilson's War together. Um, uh, Hoffman was the last of, I think, 18 actors that Mike directed to an Academy Award nomination. They did um, uh, Death of a Salesman together. And there's no question in my mind that if they had kept going, if they had stayed alive, they would have kept going. Mike would have wanted to work with uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman for as long as he could have, because he was the kind of actor that Mike really loved, questioning, thoughtful, um, intensely committed to the role. And in that circumstance where Mike was over 80 when he directed Death of a Salesman, um, and not always in the best of health. It, uh, you know, I think there were times when Philip Seymour Hoffman wanted more direction than he was getting, but he was such a great actor and had such a clear bead on the, the role and on the play that uh, he and Mike were almost able to develop a kind of unofficial directing partnership where Mike would keep uh, a really close eye on the big themes of the play and the mood of the play. And Hoffman would keep an eye on the specific action scene by scene. But yes, it did. It took uh, a terrible toll on him. And I, I don't think the, I don't think anything about the process necessarily took a toll on him. It was just, you know, wrestling with this white whale of a part, which is if you're a certain kind of actor, it's one of those things like Hamlet in the American theater. Like, you know, it, it 
Willie Loman is a mountain that a certain kind of actor is always going to want to climb. Yeah, it's incredible, his performance, and it is tragic what happened as a result of it. From Philip Seymour Hoffman to Dustin Hoffman, the stories of The Graduate are incredible. Hoffman is in danger of being overcome by the feeling he was in over his head. He could also be tough, caustic, and dismissive. Go clean the inside of your nose, Nichols would tell Hoffman again and again and before it takes. Oh, I'm sick of that shirt off. He remarked to the crew as Hoffman started to undress for a scene. we got to have him dress once in a while. It's not like he's Bardot. When he didn't like Hoffman's approach, his wit hardened into ice. At times, Nichols' behavior verged on sadistic. He insisted on shooting 15 takes of a scene in which Elaine slaps Benjamin and the slaps weren't faked. The next day, blood poured out of Hoffman's ear. He had torn his eardrum. This is stunning stuff to read, Mark. On the one hand, he's like gentle and supportive, and he's giving Dustin Hoffman the role of a lifetime. On the other hand, he's torturing the poor guy. I don't know how Dustin Hoffman got through it. Right. It's. I mean, Dustin Hoffman said to me at one point it, toward the end of the shoot, I really felt that they did not care whether I lived or died. And it's this, you know, it's this extraordinary combination because, yeah, the the. I mean, there were moments and there were days on which. Uh, Nichols treated Hoffman brutally, and yet it was this extraordinary act of faith. You know, we think of Dustin Hoffman as a movie star. He was nobody when this movie was was made. It was, you know, Robert Redford wanted that part. It was a huge leap to go with an unknown who looked and sounded like Dustin Hoffman. And and I don't think there was ever a point, even when their relationship got really rough on that movie, when Nichols didn't think. Hoffman was a great actor. Like his talent was never in doubt. I've got to go back and see some Mike Nichols movies. I want your personal opinion. Do I watch Cardinal Knowledge or do I watch Heartburn? Here's what's selling me on Cardinal Knowledge. Uh, it was a picture about fucking, and everybody in the crew was fucking like a bunch of apes. There were a lot of girls around. That's Osteen's quote about that. Jack Nicholson, obviously, and Heartburn, which is a hysterical line Nora Ephron wrote about Carl Bernstein. He was so horny he'd have sex with a Venetian blind. Which of those two movies would you recommend, Cardinal Knowledge or Heartburn? Well, it's a it's a pretty brutal double feature about marriage and about the relationships between men and women. I think I think, you know, um, Carl Knowledge is like a brilliant movie that will leave you um, flattened and hopeless and incredibly impressed by Mike Nichols's technique. And Heartburn is an incredibly funny movie that will leave you kind of hopeful and impressed by Mike Nichols's incredible gifts of setting a tone and finding perfect movie performances. Heartburn is an easier watch. Uh, I love it personally. Carl Knowledge, I think, is a great movie that is really, really, like, it's shocking now. It's 50 years old, but if that movie were made right now, like, Twitter would be, like, aflame with fights. It's that kind of movie. So I would say start, start with Colonel Knowledge. It's first. And if you survive, go to Heartburn. I want to see both. They both sound awesome. Uh, one more on Nichols, and I want to ask you about Dr. Doolittle, and we'll get you on your way. This is really interesting <laughs> about Nichols. He screened movies obsessively. This is before he did um, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? A Place in the Sun to convince himself Taylor could manage a difficult role. Truffaut's The 400 Blows to remind himself what a, move, a novice director could do. A Streetcar Named Desire for proof that a play could work on film. And most often, Fellini's Eight and a Half. Four times during pre-production, he returned to the portrait of a director as romantic anti-hero, both solitary and besieged, connecting to nothing but his own creative instincts. For a while, he believed it was the best movie ever made. That's, that was resonant to me because Eight and a Half is one of my favorite movies of all time. But I just love the fact that like, this is early in his career, Mark, and he's got that kind of, 
I guess worldly knowledge, he's urbane. He's sophisticated enough to say, a place in the sun, 400 blows, streetcar name is our eight and a half. Let me watch all these and let me glean something from each before I make Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, I, I mean, I think Mike had uh, an incredible and unusual combination of attributes, which is that on the one hand, he was incredibly intellectually curious. He would reach for four movies as different as that to do prep. And on another hand, he really knew when to go with his gut. Like he didn't, he didn't sort of map out a specific strategy to see those four movies. He he lunged at the things he he just felt viscerally that he cared about and trusted that his instincts were going to carry him to the right place. I think you need both of those qualities: great curiosity and trust in your own gut if you're going to be a great director. He certainly was. Uh, other stuff, I want everyone to read this book. It's called Mike Nichols, A Life by Mark Harris. Also the fact Nichols wore a wig. Walter Matthau was not a good guy. George C. Scott was a raging alcoholic. There's stuff about family neglect, Diane Sawyer. Uh, he saw George Stevens' A Place in the Sun, I think, 150 times. There's tons of stuff in there. Make sure you read it. Now we get to pictures in a revolution. And this stuff about Dr. Doolittle. Hang on. I, one other thing here about, uh, about Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Um, in the script, a title sequence that included Burton's character, George, going for a walk and coming upon two dogs fucking and it said in parentheses this must be beautifully shot and Thad Silbert who later became my costume designer said I know how to just to do that Afghans and lots of fans that's just an unbelievable line I had to pass along um, did, <laughs> so now we get to the Doolittle stuff so I'm reading this Mark going, okay I've seen all these movies with the exception of Dr. Doolittle I'm like okay there's lots of good stuff for The Graduate In the Heat of the Night of course guess is coming to dinner um, and it's all wonderful now you're right up my alley Adnan Chris, you're going to love this stuff. Okay, here we go. Um, Herbert, what happened? He said, we're postponed for three days. The giraffe stepped on his cock. Um, now, we get to other stuff here involving Rex. <laughs> My man Rex was out of control. Him and his wife, uh, Rachel Roberts, they showed up disheveled and disoriented a tribute to George Cooker one night. Harrison with his toupee stuffed in his jacket pocket. On another occasion, Harrison appalled a room full of Hollywood establishment, among them William Wilder, Billy Wilder, Jimmy Stewart, and their wives at a party singing obscene lyrics about his penis to the tune of I've Grown Accustomed to Her Face, while Roberts, who was not wearing underwear, did handstand. I got one more, Mark, and then I thought, let's give the floor to you, because I don't know how you got this kind of research. During one long evening at the Burtons, Robert sent their guests, Tennessee Williams and director Joseph Losey, running for the door, when in Burton's words, she insulted Rex sexually, morally, physically, lay on the floor in the bar and barked like a dog, started to masturbate her basset hound. Did you ever think in writing this book, the most salacious and crazy details would be about Dr. Doolittle? I, I really did not think it. And, you know, the funny thing is uh, the the producer of that movie, a guy named Arthur Jacobs, was, was like a researcher's dream because he had kept every piece of paper that was ever connected to this movie. And then um, uh, when he died, it was all put in an archives. So the archives was in uh, at Loyola Marymount University, this Catholic university um, in California. And I, I, I remember when I came upon some of the most salacious details that you just read, uh, going through those, those boxes of research in the unlikeliest possible setting, I thought, 
is this actually like, am I committing a sin by reading this stuff in a, in a Catholic university? I'm still not sure. Honestly, it's great, great stuff. I don't know if you heard, Quentin Tarantino was on Mark Maron's podcast recently, and they brought up pictures at a revolution, and Tarantino said, he's my favorite. So I just want to pass it along. I hope you realize I love your work. Quentin Tarantino loves your work. Keep more of this work coming. Pictures at a revolution, five came back, and Mike Nichols of life. And also, being an EW guy, I've talked to Owen Glaberman, I've talked to Ty Burr, and I noticed in the acknowledgments you, you kept in touch with Lisa Schwartzbaum. Please let her know. I love her takes. The Iranian new wave of the late 90s, she championed all those movies, Kiristami and Majid Majidi. So I always love those movies. So I don't know what's ever happened to her, but I used to love her reviews. And I love all you EW alumni. You guys are all great. Oh, thanks so much. I will definitely pass that along to her. She'll be happy to hear it. All right. Mark Harris, once again, the book is called Mike Nichols, Pictures at a Revolution. Also, five came back. I appreciate the time and uh, all the best. Thank you. You too. Not going to lie, I thought we were talking about Eddie Murphy's Dr. Doolittle. <laughs> Dude, same thing. Like When I was going through this book, and I'm like, okay, like Bonnie and Clyde, and they hit it like, Dr. Doolittle. I'm like, wait, how, how, is this, how is this involved with these things? But I chimed in, but the way you dismissed it, I thought it was like he went to Dr. Eddie Murphy's Dr. Doolittle. I'm an idiot. No, no, you're not an idiot, because you're, if, someone, <laughs> if someone said to you right now, I read a book involving Dr. Doolittle, the first thing you think is Eddie Murphy. Not okay. one of us would think there's a live-action movie which was made back in 1967 okay. in which a giraffe was involved and live animals and stuff. <laughs> that was wild. All right, thanks so much. I'm glad that Chris Cody loved the Mark Harris interview. I hope you all did as well. Go read his books. Thanks so much to my man, Stu Gotts. We'll be back next week. Reviews of Pig, Nicolas Cage's new movie, Old M. Night Shyamalan's new movie, as well as The Righteous Gemstones. Until then, I'll see you at the movies. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.